Peter Berry wanted to leave his mark. So he became a graffiti artist, a tagger. His nickname was Kaiser. And he was gifted, apparently. In fact, he even went to art school. But he wouldn't give up the illegal and dangerous night prowling to tag buildings, fences, underpasses, even cranes and other structures. Worm, another tagger who wouldn't give his real name, was a fan. Peter wasn't just any bomber. He was one of the greatest, he said. He climbed to the highest spots. He had guts. His name was known. His name will still be known. Peter Berry was killed in the early morning hours of August 16, 2004, hit, hit by a northbound CTA train. He was 22 years of age. Lots of people want to leave their mark in this world, want to be remembered, want to be known. So they pursue dreams and goals that go nowhere in the end. We invest in our careers and our homes, our hobbies, our interests, all the stuff we like to do. We want to make a mark in this world. We want to be significant. But the truth is that we don't really find out what kind of mark we leave in this world until it's over. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 this morning as we continue our study here. Ecclesiastes 7. Solomon teaches us that we will know the value of life at the end of life. So often, the roads we drive end up to be dead-end streets. We need a map that will guide us through life. We need signposts that will help us navigate life well. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, gives us a map to follow as we walk the road of life. Now, God's road map for life is a little different than we expect. God doesn't tell us what turn to take at each intersection of life. God's really not like a GPS, you know? Turn right, turn left, recalculating. <laughs> God teaches us instead how to read the road map of life so that we make good decisions at each intersection. We still have to make the choices all along the way. So he teaches us how to read the road map with the principles of his word. And we live life one choice at a time one intersection at a time. And if you're expecting God to tell you at each intersection, turn left, turn right, go straight, whatever, that doesn't often happen. Sometimes he does. But most often he gives us the principles for how to read 
the roadmap of life. Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 14, are poetry. And verse 1 is the verse that introduces the rest of the poem. Now, Hebrew poetry is different than modern poetry. Hebrew poetry is not built on rhyming. It is built on parallelisms. And in particular, there are different kinds of parallelisms in Hebrew poetry. But in particular, in verse 1, we have what is called synonymous parallelism. So, the two parts of the couplet in verse 1 are parallel. They are intended to be read as explaining each other. And verse 1 then introduces the poem that we will study. So a good name is parallel to the day of death. And a fine perfume is parallel to the day of birth. And you could supply is better in the second couplet because that's his point. A good name is better than fine perfume. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. A good name is a good reputation a good testimony. And this good reputation, he says, is better than fine perfume. Now, at parties in the ancient Near East, they would slather themselves with expensive oils and perfumes so that their bodies glistened and, most importantly, they smelled good because bathing was not a big deal in the ancient Near East. And this was true not for women, this was true for men. So these perfumes, these oils were intended to put on a good face, if you will, as we went to a party together. Now you could make yourself smell good, you could make yourself look good with costly ointments, but he says a good reputation, a good name, is better than all the perfume you can buy. Parallel to that thought is the issue of birth and death. Most people think of the day of birth as being better than the day of death because you have all this potential ahead of you in life when you're born. Solomon says, all the potential in the world is nothing more than fine perfumes until the life is lived out and we find out what is the result of that life at the day of death. And that is better than all the potential that's unrealized in life. The good name or reputation is discovered in death, not birth. We don't know the value of our lives until we reach the end of our lives. Now, The rest of the poem is explaining how to read God's roadmap. How do we live then so that the result of our lives is a good name, a good reputation, a good testimony? So here are five map reading lessons that he gives us in his poem. First of all, we learn more from funerals than parties. First map reading lesson, we learn more from funerals than parties. Look at verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 7. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. 
Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. So this is his first stanza in the poem. Henry Ford once said, you, can build, you can't build a reputation on what you're going to do. We all have great intentions in life. But good intentions don't pave the way to a good reputation. When life comes to an end, we find out what life was all about. We may have had lots of good intentions for this week, for, our, for each day, for our lives. But a wasted life has little value no matter how good our intentions were. We don't stand before God and say, well, I, but I intended, I had good intentions, God. The way of wisdom teaches us that we should pay more attention to the lessons of death and reflect on the shortness of life so that we don't end up with wasted lives. The truth is that we learn more than from funerals than parties. Solomon says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. It's better for us to go to the funeral home than the frat house. It's better for us to stand near a casket than near a bar. It's better for us to visit the graveside than the dance floor. Why? Because, he says, death is the end of every person and the living should take that to heart. I like the way the NIV actually translates this. Death is the destiny of every man and the living should take it to heart. There is one thing we know with certainty about life, and that is that we'll die. Apart from the Lord coming back, we'll all die. Death is the one certainty of life for everyone in this room. Now I'm beginning to sound like an insurance salesman. I'm not selling death insurance this morning so that you loved ones left behind get money. I am, however, selling, if you will, the idea that there is a life insurance that is far more valuable than all the money in the world. And it is the insurance of a good testimony, a good name that you leave behind. A good testimony in death is worth more than all of the life insurance in the world. The wise learned that lesson by facing death, he says. The heart of the fools is busy with all the parties, never learns the lesson of death until it's too late. Sorrow is better than laughter, he says. Solomon tells us in verse 3 that a face is sad, but a heart may be happy. The NIV says a sad face is good for the heart. The English Standard Version translates it, by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Now, as Christians, we know this truth, 
because we have eternity in our hearts. He already told us that back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So we can experience a deeper gladness in the sadness. Even as we weep in death, we know the joy of eternal life. And as we come alongside someone who is experiencing the sorrow of death, there is a deeper gladness in that sorrow for the Christian. Deeper than the best party that you might go to. It's the joy, the gladness that comes from eternal life and knowing the Lord. And so we learn more from the funerals than we do from the parties of life. Mike Barris from Andrews, North Carolina, tells about April, a young adult who had attended their church. April had invited a young friend, Josh Collins, to go with her to a special drama that the church was putting on called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. And Josh not only came to this drama with April but he received Jesus Christ as his personal savior that evening. And he invited all of his teenage friends to come that week on Wednesday night to view the drama as well. He was so excited. Excited about his newfound faith, he also bought a Christian CD and he invited his friends to watch a Christian video to hear the gospel message. These are teenage friends. He told everyone at work that he was a Christian. The following Friday, Josh was traveling down Highway 28, a curvy road that runs alongside the little Tennessee River. No one knows why. Perhaps he reached for something, but he rolled his truck over and into the river. It was a spring. The river was running very fast and was very full and a search team couldn't find his body. So Mike, the associate pastor of the church at the time, went to the river to see Josh's parents and pray with them and with the gathering of people that was there. They were thankful that their son had made a decision for Christ, and they knew they would see him in heaven. The body was finally recovered Friday afternoon. Those who went through the truck, said that the Christian CD was still playing underwater when they found it. The family asked Mike to do the funeral, so he did. 1,500 people showed up for the funeral. Largest funeral in that little town. At the funeral, many spoke about how Josh became a Christian just days before he died. And a number of people accepted Christ as their Savior that day. At the graveside, one of the high school teachers reported that a number of students had told him that they too had come with Josh to the drama and that they too had accepted Christ as their Savior. Pastors told him that when they mentioned this at their churches the following Sunday, many more people responded to the gospel. And when Mike preached that Sunday a number of people in their church 
came to know Christ as their personal Savior and put their faith in Him. And the next day, Mike got a call from a sheriff in a neighboring county who had been at the funeral and now wanted him to speak at a youth rally and tell people there about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Josh was a believer for what? Not even a week. And look what God did. So many heard the message of salvation. Folks, a good name, a good testimony. In that funeral service was far more effective than anything else. We learn way more from funerals than we do from parties. That's the first map lesson of life. The second map lesson... Wise correction is better than shallow songs. Verse 5. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. And this too is futility, emptiness. For oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts his heart. So we would be better off in life to listen to the lessons we can learn in a Wednesday night Bible study than to spend our time watching Saturday Night Live or listening to Lady Gaga. The comedians of late night television make millions of dollars, but their jokes, he says, are like a crackling thorn bush in a fire. If you take the thin branches of a thorn bush and throw it into the fire, it erupts in flames. But it's not going to keep you too warm at minus five. It's gone. It's worthless. If you take a dry Christmas tree, it erupts in flames. But it has no value. And he says, that's what these Silly songs that people make millions doing, these comedians who make millions doing, all the jokes, all the parties, all the laughter, all of that stuff, it's nothing more than a crackling thorn bush in a fire. It has no lasting value. So the second map lesson of life, if you're trying to live life well, the second lesson is this. Listen to the rebukes and the criticisms and the lessons from those who are wise. They may not be famous. They may not make millions. But you will learn much more from them than you will from all the shallow songs and jokes of this world. So if we pay attention to the lessons we learn in the Bible and from those who are wise in how to live God's way, then we will be far more successful in life because of that wisdom that we are following in our lives. The Washington Post's style invitation will ask readers to take any word from the dictionary, alter it by adding, subtracting, or changing just one letter, and then supply a new definition for the word. So you get to change one letter, supply a new definition for the word. Here are a few of the winners. Hepatitis is terminal coolness. That gives you an example of how this is done, all right? Carmageddon. 
Here's the definition. It's like when everybody is like sending off all these really bad vibes, right? And then like the earth explodes and it's like a totally serious bummer. All right, next one. Inoculate. To take coffee intravenously when you're running late. Intoxication. Euphoria at getting a tax refund, which lasts until you realize it was your money to start with. (laughs) The Doppler effect. The tendency of stupid ideas to seem smarter when they come at you rapidly. (laughs) And the bozone layer. I gotta put this one down. The substance surrounding some of us that stops wisdom from penetrating. Unfortunately, unlike ozone, the bozone layer shows little sign of breaking down. (laughs) And it's especially evident in adolescent young males. (laughs) We hope that as life goes on and we listen to the wisdom and the rebukes and the correction from those who are wise in life, that the bozone layer gets thinner and thinner and thinner. And we actually start paying attention to wisdom, and wisdom actually gets through. Because it is a fundamental practice of successful living. Third, patience carries us through life successfully. Verse 8. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Right, so much of life is spent waiting, isn't it? We get ready for the race of life. And God says, ready, set, wait. They did a study a few years ago back in the Chicago area. It was a study of how long people spent at stoplights. And they decided that if you lived in the... They they demonstrated that if you lived in the Chicago area your whole life, you would spend six months of your life your life sitting at stoplights. Six months of your life. That's a lot of waiting. You'd think we'd be good at patience. You'd think we'd be good at waiting, right, if we got all this practice. But we're not. We are terrible at waiting. We are terrible at patience. And Solomon tells us that it is far better to patiently wait for the end of a thing than to be proud at the beginning. When we take pride in what we've started, we tend to get angry, he says, very quickly when our plans don't work out like we want. Impatient people are angry people. And we have a lot of angry people in our world today. We get get angry way too easily. And the anger comes from what? Our pride, he says. It's better to be patient in spirit than have that pride 
that has to get this thing done now. The root of anger is pride, Solomon tells us, and pride comes from inside of us and our plans. Pride keeps us from being patient until the end of the matter arrives. You know, God is a sovereign God, but pride keeps us from being patient to wait for Him. Pride runs over those who get in our way. We are impatient. We want results now. And that's pride showing itself in our impatience. Fools quickly erupt in anger, Solomon writes. Wise people have learned to be patient until the end comes, and we will be far more successful in life when we can learn to be patient. Another characteristic, he says, of impatience is a tendency to look back to the past through rose-colored glasses. When we wish for the days gone by, he says, we are fools. It's not wisdom. It's the fool who looks to the past, looks to the good old days of life. That's a fool, he says. Longing for those good old days usually means we have lost sight of what God wants us to be doing right now. A fool lives in the past. Incidentally, the good old days rarely are as good as we remember them. Patience carries us through life successfully as we seek to do what God wants us to do today. What do you have? You have only now. You don't have the past. You can't redo it. You don't have the future. You only have today for the Lord. And patience teaches us to do what we do today for him and be content to wait for the end of all of those things, the results in God's time. Eleven miles off the east coast of Scotland in the North Sea stands the Bell Rock Lighthouse. It has endured the North Sea's violent storms since 1811. It rests upon less than one acre of, of rock. The, the reef, the rock, is covered by water 20 hours out of every day. The builder of the lighthouse, Robert Stevenson, and his band of 65 craftsmen had four hours each day to build this lighthouse. And it took them years and years and years in their four hours a day. But what they built is still standing and still operating today. This 115-foot tall lighthouse. Four hours a day. You know what? That's kind of how life gets lived, doesn't it? You ever feel like that? Life is lived a little bit at a time. We don't get to have it all at once. We got a few hours at a time. And one day, you arrive at the end. Will what you have built with your life stand the test of time? 
in those few hours that you have each day? Are you building something that will last? Patience, he says, carries us through life successfully so that what we are building with the few hours we have each day will last into eternity. Fourth principle, fourth map lesson. The good life comes from wisdom, not money. Verse 11. Wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Now, verse 11 is a little bit difficult to translate from the Hebrew text. And the New American Standard makes it sound like wisdom is better if you have lots of money from an inheritance, too, to go along with the wisdom. I don't think that's his point here. I like the way the NIV translates the verse. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun, that is, those who are alive, because this is expression for living under the sun. So, It's great to receive a financial windfall as an inheritance. That's wonderful. Wisdom is is a blessing like an inheritance to all of us who are alive because we benefit from the wisdom. And that idea is brought out even more clearly in verse 12 where he says, For wisdom is protection just as money is. Is protection, but the advantage of knowledge or wisdom is that wisdom with preserves the lives of its possessors. So, the Hebrew word for protection, by the way, means a shelter. So, both wisdom and money provide shelters in life. Solomon doesn't deny the value of money. Money does provide a shelter in this world. Money is a shelter in this life. And that's why, of course, we buy life insurance and we invest in, in uh, all of our investments and we try to make good, sound decisions because money is a shelter. It's a protection against the storms of this life. But he says wisdom is a better shelter than money because wisdom preserves the lives of those who possess wisdom. Now, we often think that Sudden wealth, like winning the lottery or getting a big inheritance, is the path to success. But if we don't know how to handle the money we get, we will soon lose it all and be right back where we were. So wisdom, he says, is a better guarantee of success in life because wisdom helps us handle the money well. I mean, in general, his point, and he's talking about generalities here, but in general, a wise person will live longer than a foolish person because he makes better choices with his life. All other things being equal, a wise person will handle his money better than a foolish person, so wisdom is better than money in helping us live the good life here on earth. Years ago, There was a missionary in Africa by the name of Dan Crawford, and he was returning from Africa to the United States one time. And he had to take a long trek across the African continent, and several of his Christian friends, African friends, wanted to travel with him to the coast. So four of the men went with him, and as they walked, 
Dan Crawford told his friends about the glories of the coast and the, the western world and all that it had to offer, about the light that did not have a flame, about wagons that did not have to be pulled by animals, about storing their food so that it would not spoil. And he went on and on about all of the things that the civilized world had that they didn't have back there in the wilds of Africa. And as he walked and talked, three of the men entered into the conversation with this missionary many years ago. The fourth man, however, seemed totally unimpressed with it all. And after a few days as they were sitting one evening, Dan Crawford actually found it rather irritating that this one man didn't seem at all excited about getting to the city on the coast of Africa. And he said to him, aren't you eager to get there? I mean, don't you want to see all these things? And his black Christian brother responded, Mr. Crawford, to be better off is not to be better. To be better off is not to be better. We have our value system so backwards in this country, do we not? And it's not wisdom. Fourth, fifth principle. God guides us as we go by faith. Verse 13. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? Did you notice in the song we sang, or actually we didn't, it wasn't in the song, it was in the the passage from Lamentations that Mark read this morning, God bends. He makes things crooked, right? And you can't straighten them. But you can trust in his steadfast love anyway. It struck me as you were reading that this this morning, Mark, how that fits with what he's saying here. Look, consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? God puts curves in your life. God bends things. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not discover anything that will be after him. I learned a little fact about a cockleburr. It's a sticky seed pod that contains several seeds in that seed pod. Not just one seed. And these seeds, God has designed to germinate in different years. So if seed A falls to the ground, if the seed pod falls to the ground and seed A does not germinate because the soil is bad or the, you know, too much sun or too little sun, or whatever the reasons are, then seed B is still there waiting to germinate the next year. And seed C is waiting to germinate the following year. God builds into his creation. Solomon says, both prosperity and adversity. We don't know what's coming in 2011, but God does. He has already planned for what will sprout in your life this year. He's already planted the seeds that will germinate in your life the following year. Life doesn't go nice and smoothly and straight and perfectly to heaven, does it? 
There's all kinds of curves and twists and mountains and valleys and up and down and around and in and out we go. God's already figured it all out. And we can trust him. God didn't design it to be a straight superhighway to heaven. What God has made crooked, he says, we cannot straighten. We don't have that ability. So we have to take from the hand of God what he brings into our lives each year. Be happy in the prosperity. But consider in the times of adversity the steadfast love of the Lord never changes. Take the good and the bad. Both the years of prosperity and the years of struggle. We walk through life by faith taking both from the hand of God as it comes and following him. To paraphrase a famous Latin saying, life is solved by walking. We'll never get anywhere by sitting. We have to go. And as we go, God guides. As we walk, he leads. We have to be careful to follow his guidance every step of the way. We have to read his road map wisely and live each day as he calls us to live. We sometimes have to change direction and make those curves. Turn when we need to turn. By faith, though, we take each day from the hand of God and we watch for his guiding direction in our lives. There's a famous legend about a lighthouse that makes a a great point. The captain of a ship looked out into the dark night sky and he saw a very faint light out ahead of him. And he told his signal men to send a message, alter your course 10 degrees north. Promptly a return message was received, alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain was angry. His command had been ignored. So he sent a second message, alter your course 10 degrees south, I am the captain. Soon another message was received, alter your course 10 degrees north, I am a seaman, third class Jones. He sent a third message, alter your course 10 degrees south, I am a battleship. The reply came back, alter your course 10 degrees north, I am a lighthouse. God's the lighthouse. And all along the way, he teaches us and guides us, tells us to to go his way in life. But we don't know what's coming after us, Solomon says. So that man may not discover anything that God will will be doing after him. We only have today to make that choice, each day. On the day that 43-year-old former pro football player Reggie White died, December 26, 2004, he was a fine Christian man, professional football teams were playing big games with playoff consequences. One of the significant games on that day was a Colts-Chargers game in which Peyton Manning set the all-time NFL record for touchdown passes in the season, and he helped the Colts toward their postseason playoff berth. Tony Dungy, who was the head coach of the 
Indianapolis Colts at that time. Put sports in perspective, though, at the, at the press conference after the game when he said that White's death, quote, makes you understand that as great as this game is, it's not as big a deal as we think. Reggie always said, the Lord only gives you one day, you better make the most of it. God only gives you one day, make the most of it. That's how you discover God's will. Father, teach us. Teach us to read your signs each day and to live all out for you in what you place in our path and to take the good and the bad, the prosperity and the adversity from your hand and to trust in your love and guidance for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hymn number three.